0: All right, welcome into the Odds and Audible's podcast. I'm Matt Prem. Eric Scopel is with me as always. Uh, today is a Wednesday, which means it's Mailbag Wednesday. You guys dictate where the show goes. You bring us the questions. We answer them the best of our abilities. Uh, before we jump on, I want to just remind uh, anyone that's a su- uh, subscriber of DuckTerritory.com, you can activate CBS All Access for free. It's the CBS All Access streaming platform. It's... Uh, now an additional add-on to your subscription with 24 seven sports gives you access to 10,000 plus videos, movies, uh, live shows, CBS original shows. Uh, you can go back and you can watch all the big bang theory movies, all the star Trek movies. Uh, I think all the Frasier movies, uh, shows, excuse me. Um, you have access to live sports commercial free. Uh, and if you are not a subscriber, uh to DuckTerritory.com. That in of itself is a good reason why if you've been on the fence uh you, and you wanna get also CBS access, same price, nine ninety five for, for DuckTerritory.com gets you both. Uh can't beat that deal. So uh Eric, uh we've got eight questions today. Fire off the first one.
1: Yeah we're gonna start here with I think maybe the topic of kind of the day right now or at least of the week. Um, if you missed it, Micah Pittman suffered a break in the win over Arizona. Mario Cristobal announced on Monday he would be out roughly six weeks. So that was approximately the timetable for a return, which does set up the possibility of him coming back for a bowl game, although that would be cutting it pretty close. Um, but from at Ryan Hodges, with Pittman out roughly six weeks, where is your confidence level with the rest of the wide receiver core? I personally feel better than previous year's just because of the amount of guys Oregon has been able to rotate in this year, especially in the early early portion of the season. Um, Yeah, I I think Matt and I probably agree on this one, in that like the Pittman injury is is brutal, and and it stinks. And on a personal level for Micah, you you feel really bad, because he had overcome one really bad injury just to basically suffer a second gruesome injury in his first year of college football. And that's an awful, awful way for his career to start. And again, with a player who you watch him in practice, you you watch him obviously this season, you see the upside. You're it's very evident that at some point in his career he's going to be a star player for Oregon. I really still believe that, you know, even though there were uh maybe an up and down season, but a lot of that was injury related. Now in terms of replacing him, uh it, they do have guys I mean again, we talked about this I think on Monday's show. Just the trio of Johnny Johnson, Jawan Johnson and Jalen Red have really cemented themselves as kind of the big three guys. And Not to say Pittman wasn't a key part of the passing game, but he did kind of feel like a little bit more supplementary recently, in particular with those other three stepping up. Um, I I think they're going to be able to find ways. I shouldn't say I think. I'm pretty confident they're going to be able to find ways to kind of minimize his injury. And that's not to say he's not a special player. Like I said earlier, I think I truly think there's an incredible future ahead of him, but. The other three are veteran guys. They've played at a high level all season. I just think as long as those guys stay healthy and I'm now knocking furiously on wood that's in front of me, I think they're going to be okay. Um, I would look to uh, Josh Delgado possibly to step up a little bit, Brian Addison. Um, we've even mentioned on previous shows that Lance Wilhoyt and J.R. Waters, a couple of true freshmen who were out with injuries basically all, you know, since fall camp, have kind of Return to a, you know to practice a little bit and maybe available as well. Those are two guys to just kind of maybe know their names. I don't expect they're going to be catching three or four balls in you know in Tempe this weekend, but players to know. Yeah, I I, I think the reality is you have two games
0: left in the regular season, potentially uh, three more on top of that conference championship game, and then if you make the playoff and you win that, you have a championship game. So five max, four guaranteed um, with. Four games left in the season, you can get by with Jalen Red, Johnny Johnson, Jawan Johnson, uh, Brian Addison, Josh Delgado, uh, Spencer Webb, and Daywood Davis. Uh, that that can be your group um, to play, and you you still have your home run threats and and Jawan and and, and Jalen and, and Johnny. You have your big play, you know, across the middle possession type guy, and Spencer Webb and Brian Addison and Josh Delgado are are going to probably be asked to do a little bit more. Uh, this, you know, the final stretch, but you can get by with the group that you have. Um, and I agree, I, the injury in itself is awful, but from an impact standpoint, you know, Oregon can absorb the Pittman loss and, and be okay. It's gonna, it's gonna hurt. It, there's no doubt about it. Like, there's, there's gonna be some impact there, but some guys will have to do a little bit more and they'll be able to pick up. Where it hurts is that Oregon now can't afford to have another guy go down. Right. Um, that's that's where it hurts. Where they they're now back to the razor thin margin of depth, and if they suffer another kind of an injury at another spot at, at the receiver group, then things get really dicey. Just because of, it's a numbers game.
1: Yeah. No, I, I agree. I, I think you're in a spot here where the depth is as good as it's been all season prior to this Pittman injury. With the injury, with we should mention Brennan Schooler transferring earlier. Uh, it does put a little extra pressure, kind of, on everybody to stay healthy and, and to stay productive. And they're going to be facing some a couple of defenses here the next couple of weeks that maybe aren't the best they've faced all season. But in that Utah game, they'll certainly be challenged by that secondary, and that could be a game where Pittman's injury d- does factor in maybe more than maybe we're discounting just how how much his impact could be in a game against Utah, where if Utah's able to control the game early, Oregon might have to pass, and if they have to pass, and, and they, they're missing some weapons that could be. Uh, potentially uh, an issue. So uh, certainly a good question, certainly something to keep an eye on, and I think something that on Saturday we'll be certainly looking to see where, where does kind of the repetition uh, boost go, like which players maybe get a couple extra snaps just because of Pittman's absence. Second question, at Clear Duck, are we recruiting another kicker? Camden Lewis's confidence and the team's confidence is faltering in his ability. Could Oregon look into the transfer portal for an established kicker? Uh, one thing there, I don't know if we can say the team's confidence is faltering in Camden-Lewis. I think that would be uh, putting words in their mouth, and I have not heard anyone say anything to that degree. Um, I will say that like from somebody who watches the games, uh, I was feeling pretty good about his ability after he made those kicks against Washington State, but seeing how much he struggled against Arizona, I agree in terms of like my confidence level is certainly dipping. Uh, he, he missed two basically extra point distance field goals, and then... Was also, uh, almost missed another extra point. So there certainly has to be, I think, some concern now in terms of, like, what does Oregon do? Uh, that's, like, I don't, from a scholarship perspective, I don't know, like, it's gonna be sort of hard unless you're just basically telling Camden Lewis, like, hey, your scholarship won't be available next year.
0: Yeah, and I don't see Oregon doing that. Like, in, yeah, me neither. That, that would be really bad yeah. optics. Um, Now they could certainly go and offer a scholarship to another receiver or to another kicker and let that be the message like, Hey, like you're going to have to find somewhere else to play, you know, but with, you know, doing it by offering another kicker and and signing a guy and making it clear that, you know, competition is open. Uh, and if you don't win, you're not going to play. Uh, but that ties up a scholarship for two kickers when you've got limited scholarships. So they're in a tough spot. Well, We'll see what happens. Maybe they find a a, a really good walk on. I'm sure they're going to look. Uh, I would be pretty certain that they're going to look. Um, and I, and I think yeah, you would ha- be doing a disservice to the program if you didn't at least try and see if there's somebody out there that you could bring in from a walk on standpoint to push Camden Lewis in practice. Because maybe maybe he is the best option that they have. And and he's you know that's just the reality of it. You know and 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 maybe he needs to be pushed in practice, but Yeah, he's also a freshman and football is a developmental sport and guys get better over time. And, you know, I I think it's harsh to rush the judgment after one or two kicks, but it's starting to get to that point where you have to wonder, like, is he the guy long term?
1: Yeah, and I think that's the concern here because he is a freshman right now. He has three more years of eligibility. He's on scholarship. If you just kind of say, hey, we're not going to really challenge him. This is his job for three years. That's potentially a, a situation where you have three years of not a very good place kicker. And I, 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 But I also agree it's worth noting that he's a freshman, and freshmen develop. There's, there's certainly improvement at just across the board. It's hard to find players that don't get better from year one to year four. Um, so I don't think you can completely write him off. But at the same time, I, I share those concerns. I think anybody that watches the games objectively has to. Of just hey you've got a kicker who's who's missing some kicks he shouldn't be missing and it, it hasn't bit Oregon well like I guess the Auburn game that that missed kick did bite Oregon and and that you know plays a role in kind of maybe the outcome but it, since then it really hasn't cost them a game but if he's unable to hit these kind of kicks there's no doubt that a possible situation will arise where they're faced to lean on him and if he's not reliable that could cost them. Uh, potentially football games and you know right now every football games at a premium you don't want to lose those games so uh it's certainly something to keep an eye on and, and we will track if there is any movement in terms of recruiting or, or using a, tr- a i guess a, tr- a transfer kicker third question from at sundog 80 why is justin herbert or any of the starters still in these games when we have a big lead time to get reps for the backups and not risk a major injury like tua at alabama um, I think he's referencing the fact that Herbert was out there for Oregon's second-to-last drive with about three minutes to go, and they were up 28 points. And um, I don't know how you were feeling about this, map, but when I was watching it, I was also confused why it wasn't Tyler Shuck time. I mean, they were up four scores. Uh, it was pretty clear that the game was over at that point. Uh, there wasn't a lot of time. It did feel like the opportune time to put in Tyler Shuck. Now, I do have a quote because just uh, Mario Cristobal was asked about this on Monday. Yeah. And I've got the quote here, so I'll read it really quick and then I'll turn it over to Matt if, if he has any further thought. But Mario said on Monday of, of, of Herbert being in late against Arizona. In terms of Justin being in late in the game, I don't know what is defined as late or not an opportunity or a guy shouldn't be playing or what not. I know what we had called were really safe and good place to continue moving the football. And we play football here at Oregon, so that's, where, where, that's what we're going to do.
0: Yeah, it was a weird answer. Um I think... Agreed. I, I, I think where... The ball was positioned in his last possession uh, that Justin was out there. Also played a factor. The ball was in the 10-yard line, I think, inside Oregon's own 10-yard line. And they've done that before where they've had a play called or you know, they've ran a couple plays to get the ball out of their own red zone. And then Tyler Schott comes in just in case something crazy happens and, you know, fumble or, or whatnot. They don't want to have, you know – back up in there and give up a score. Um It was weird. I would have preferred to see Shuck a little earlier, but at the same time, like, the ball was inside the 10, and I understand, like, you know, there was only a couple minutes left, high probability that Arizona wasn't going to come back and win. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, like, that's probably why Herbert was out there originally, and I think Tyler Shuck was warming up, getting ready to come in, and, you know, then they just didn't get a first down, and they had to punt again. Uh, but I would have liked to have seen Chuck. I think that was an opportunity. And, and probably at the same time, like they, if they were going to put Chuck in, they probably wanted to run some kind of play, you know, pass play to get him going. And again, it goes back to, well, where was the ball placed inside the, their own 10 yard line? And, you know, that's a tough spot to put a, a, a freshman quarterback who's probably going to be playing against, you know, first string defenders. So, you know, they're, Certainly playing, protecting the ball, and and making sure that they didn't create a turnover that wasn't necessary.
1: I think the thing that also stands out from Cristobal's answer is just that they were running, quote-unquote, really safe and good plays. Um, uh, Clearly, they weren't going to put the ball in Herbert's hand and ask him to hold it for a long, developing route. I think they had three—I think it was two run plays and a first down, two run plays, and then I think he attempted like a screen pass to Travis Dye. So it was it was clear they weren't going to put him in a spot where he could potentially be injured, uh, which is what happened to Tua. But at the same time, football is a weird thing, and I, I think going forward, I don't know personally. I would like to see number ten not on the field when the game's out of out of hand, and there's a possibility of just somebody coming in out of nowhere and maybe landing on him weird or, or whatnot. You just don't want to see something weird happen in a spot like that with just kind of how much he obviously means to this program. This fourth absolutely. This fourth question is a Matt Preem special here because, uh, Uh-oh. this is like a bold prediction every week. So this is for you, Matt. This is from who's the boss. Who will be the next person on the Oregon roster to score their first career touchdown? Because, uh, Matt's been, Matt's been calling for these Justin Herbert, uh, first touchdown, uh, I guess passes to different players basically for the entire season. I think you've hit probably like half of them. So yeah, I'll, I'll uh,
0: it, not a lot of options, not a lot of options left. I mean, Travis Dye hasn't, uh, well, he did score his first touchdown this season uh, on a pass from from Justin Herbert late in the game last week, but it wasn't his first. Uh, Josh Delgado is probably the one that's most likely, considering he's a true freshman hasn't scored. Um, outside of that, you're going to go to guys that are currently redshirting. You know, maybe a, a Sean Dollars at running back. Maybe a, a Patrick Herbert at tight end. Uh Maybe a walk-on like a Tevin Jennis. Uh, he could, maybe he comes in at receiver and, and gets a little bit of run and plays. Isaiah Crocker maybe. Uh, that's a guy that, that he hasn't caught a pass at all, all season. He hasn't caught a pass in his career. So maybe that happens with the injury to, to Micah Pittman. He gets in, in the, on, onto the field a little bit, but not a lot of options left uh, at this point in the season. Uh, for first career touchdown. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna go with Josh Delgado. I think he's probably the most likely of the group. Nine catches, 116 yards. He's played in nine of the ten games for Oregon. So, uh, he'll probably have a bigger role now that, that Pittman's out.
1: I, yeah, I think offensively Delgado is, is clearly the pick. And then if you were to pick someone on defense, you have a ton of guys to choose from. And that would be just almost impossible for us to try to predict because it's probably like 20 guys. Has Lenore, has Lenore scored a touchdown? I don't know that one off the top of my head. Uh I, sh- I should probably look it up. I-, I don't think so. I can't think of one. He got pretty close on an interception this year. I don't think he has as many. Uh, Lenore Die defensively would be a guy that, to do it. Yeah, Die would. Yeah, I could see something like that. And Lenore would. That's not a bad pick either, just in terms of like he's somebody who is obviously going to be covering a lot of receivers. They might throw at him a lot and. Let's see here. He's got five career interceptions, and I don't see a touch. Nope, no touchdowns so far for Diomedio Lenore. So maybe that's a good defensive pick.
0: Yeah, that's maybe who I would go with. I was going to go defensively, Diomedio Lenore. So, all right, that's going to do it for us for the first four questions here on the Austin Audibles podcast, Mailbag Wednesday edition. Uh We'll take a quick break. We'll come right back. Alright, welcome back to the Auds Audibles Podcast Mailbag Edition. That means you guys send in the questions to Eric. You dictate where the show goes each Wednesday. Uh, I imagine as it, as it, you know, as we go on, it's been mostly football and, you know, basketball's trickled in a little bit, but recruiting will, will probably dominate here in a couple weeks. And then once, you know, recruiting's over, basketball will pick up and then it'll go to spring football. So remember, you guys get to, to kind of dictate where this show goes and we've got four more questions uh to close up shop
1: the fifth question from at josh harden for what player have you been most impressed with that you didn't see coming at the start of the year i really like this question so um i've got three players here and and there are probably more that i'm just not thinking of and, and maybe matt will pick up on some of those we're here three i thought of just to, to start think first off spencer webb uh, I don't think there were, I don't think there was a whole lot of expectation he was going to be a huge factor offensively. I think coming into the fall, he was kind of considered the fourth tight end behind Breland's, McCormick, Ryan Bay, maybe even fifth behind Cantmore. I think those were, I think it was, to me it felt like kind of Webb and Moyer were probably the two guys battling for the fourth most reps and who knew, Patrick Herbert also felt like somebody who could take, um, opportunity away from, from Spencer Webb. And yet he's been, with the Breland injury, with the McCormick injury, two of those top two guys go down. He's really stepped up and in, in terms of when they're throwing the football, established himself as as Justin Herbert's probably favorite receiving tight end. Not probably. Definitely Justin Herbert's favorite receiving tight end. You know, he's three touchdowns on the season. He's fifth in the team in receiving. Um, somebody who stepped up. And, and, honestly, you look at the future of the tight end position, and I think that's where you start from 2020 and beyond. And I know there are maybe he's not quite – the same level as a blocker as a Hunter Campmoyer uh, going forward. Um, if Cam McCormick can get healthy, McCormick obviously has tremendous upside as well. But to me, it feels like Spencer Webb, based upon how he's played so far this season, is a guy that you have to be aware of going forward. And a couple others. I think Cyrus Sibivilikio, especially the way he played at Washington, that was something I didn't see coming. He hasn't had a, a ton of production since, but there was that three-game stretch there with, I think, uh, Cal, Colorado, Washington, where he played at a really high level, scored some touchdowns, kind of demanded a bigger role, kind of fallen off a little since it sounds like he was dinged up uh, against Washington State. So that would make some sense for for why that's been the case. But somebody I didn't really, he kind of felt like, look, he may, maybe he's their third or fourth running back, but how much of a role is he going to have? He's he's actually been uh, kind of a, a fairly involved player offensively, leads the team in rushing touchdowns, and then defensively, um, Brady Breeze. Uh, and I guess another one would be, I guess, Verona Kinley. But I think by the start of the season, we kind of had a good idea he was going to be a factor. But uh, Brady Breeze kind of lost the starting job to Nick Pickett. And it kind of felt like, you know, last year Pickett beat out Breeze for the same position. And Pickett really was the guy out there probably 90% of the time. But this year we've seen, I want to say, a, a, a complete job share. It hasn't been a 50-50 split exactly. But it's been close enough for is playing a, a lot of snaps and, and playing at a pretty high level. So... I think Webb, maybe Lecchio, and Breeze are three guys that stood out for me that I wasn't necessarily expecting would be a big part of Oregon this season, but that have kind of uh, filled in really nicely.
0: Breeze is fifth in the team in tackles with 36, and he has, he's second on the team in fumble recoveries. Uh, he's got an interception return for a touchdown with 32. He's got a pass breakup. Yeah, yeah, that's a good one. Um, but I, I think I was going to pick Morell McKinley because yeah. I had him pegged going into the year as a, a developmental player that was going to maybe see a little bit of action. He leads the team in interceptions with, with Javon Holland. They're both tied with four. He's got 84 yards of return yardage. He's, what is he? I can't, I just lost him now. Uh He's seventh on the team in tackles with 34 tackles, two pass breakups. He's got a tackle for loss. I mean, this was a guy like, he's starting now. Like, I didn't. I wasn't even expecting him to, like, it became obvious, you know, week one or week two, he was going to play a ton, but I wasn't even expecting that, like, three weeks before that period. Like, I was like, okay, McKinley might be a guy down the road that helps Oregon, you know, in a big way. And he's doing it now as a redshirt freshman to the point where I kind of feel like if, Thomas Graham and A Lenore both go pro. Oregon's got two cornerbacks waiting in the wings, Michael Wright and Verone McKinley, that can play that position and, and play it well at the next level and replace them. There might be a drop-off, but I think the talent's there for those guys to, to, to step in. And McKinley can also play safety. That's where he's played the most this season, Yeah, is yep. is, is playing at the safety position. Uh, and then I, I think one that is – Needs to be mentioned is Javon Holland because while he started last year and was, uh, you know, kind of that, that fifth defensive back and was a freshman All-American, everyone kind of felt like, wow, he's going to be good, you know, down the road. I, I, that's an NFL player and I will be shocked if he's here beyond his junior season and the growth that he's had from year one to year two. Is amazing to the point where I kind of wonder if he's the best player on defense ahead of Troy Dye, ahead of Jordan Scott, ahead of Graham or Lenore. I I, I really think Holland might be Oregon's best player defensively, and it, it might not even be close. I mean, and that and I think that's not to to, to say that how bad those other guys are. It just speaks to the improvement Holland has had because those guys are all really good. That I mentioned that he could be better than. I, I think Holland also is a guy that. We thought he was going to be good, but I don't think we were expecting him to be this good.
1: Another one I just thought of while listening to you uh, is Johnny Johnson is a player I think we had sort of after his rough 2018 season. I don't want to say we crossed him off, but I think we thought he'd kind of get passed up. Oregon doesn't have the record they do right now, if not for his contributions. He's been critical uh, at at wide receiver and and really setting himself up here for a strong junior and senior season to finish up his career a player who started his freshman year at a high level, had a really poor sophomore season. What a great bounce back here for, for Johnny Johnson and, and somebody who I think, yeah, I wasn't necessarily expecting much from him this year, but have been re- super impressed with what he's uh, done for this team. All right, number six from at Urban Slaughter one Why are we closing out the recruiting class so weekly? I know we're still hoping to get Sewell, but are we going to have room left for any other blue chippers? I'll let Matt handle that one.
0: I don't know why everyone looks at the three-star status and says that Oregon's closing week. You know, it, it, look at, look at the guys across the depth chart that are, you know, players that come from recruiting hotbeds that are three-star players at Oregon that are playing well. Troy Die, Uh, you, you've got Isaac Slade, Matthew Attia, You've got Vero McKinley. You have Jordan Scott, uh, Offensively, you have Jalen Red, uh, CJ Verdell at running back is a, was a three star. You know, there's a lot of guys. Shane Lemieux is a three star player. Uh, Calvin Throckmorton was was a four and a three by some different services. So, you know, Jake Hansen was a three. Um, well, I'm not trying to say like four stars don't matter because it does. You need to go out and you need to find players that are good. Uh, and get as many talented players as possible. At the same time though, like, you need to be able to go out and, and, and get guys that are from good, you know, good areas that produce players all the time. And he's referencing Jalen Smith, uh, the defensive tackle three star player from North Carolina who committed to the Ducks, uh, earlier this week. And last all, all I need to know is that North Carolina State offered because North Carolina State last four or five years has put multiple defensive linemen into the NFL every year. And their coaches know something about defensive linemen. And Oregon found a guy that they liked and he was committed to the North Carolina State. They got him to back off that commitment, got him to then visit Oregon and commit. And he fits a body type that just isn't as common as it is out west, six foot four, six foot five, 280, 290 pounds. And these are guys that are showing up ready to play. Brandon Dorless this year, you know, we've seen Jordan Scott, we've seen Austin Folio, we've seen Keon Hudson, uh, Christian Williams. You know, all of those guys were three or four star recruits and fit the same body type as a Jalen Smith does and where, where Oregon goes next. Like I, I, I think, you know, there's going to be a couple guys that may not get into school, whether it's because of academics, uh, maybe because they, they take a red red shirt, uh, gray shirt, excuse me. Um, I, I think there's going to be some movement in this recruiting class. That's going to open up a couple extra spots. And I honestly think that Oregon's also going to take a couple more guys than we were expecting. It originally was going to be around 20, and now it looks more like 24, 25, maybe 26 guys. So they've got room for four four, four or five more guys in this, in this class. And, you know, look, Justin Flo, a five star, DJ Rogers, a tight end, four star recruit, uh, Noah Sewell, five star, you know, Keely Ringo, a five star, Dante Manning, a four star, like, there's guys out there, and they're not. They were never going to to take Keely Ringo and Dante Manning. Like that just was not gonna happen. They were gonna take one of the two. You know, ideally they'd like to take two, but they just don't. You know, they don't need two of them. And and so it's all about just can you get a Ringo or a Flow? Can you get a Manning or a Ringo? Can can you hold on to Avante Williams, which he was here this past weekend for an official visit. So, like, I don't – I mean, Oregon's 15th in the country. They're second in the Pac-12. They're still in the top groups for a couple five-star guys. One or two of those guys follow their way, and this class goes into the top ten. And I I don't see what's wrong with that.
1: Yeah, I, I would agree with that, and I, I I always think it's interesting the way the perception is about because I actually think following these two, they're trying to get visits and who has visited. There's some big dogs still out there for Oregon to possibly land, and Matt did a good job of running through them. Here's another recruiting question from at Engel at Angleson A. I keep seeing Oregon as hosting players that have committed elsewhere. Can Matt, and he hand, he singles you out, Matt, to handle this because you handle recruiting, as he says. Explain that. Thanks, guys. Love the show.
0: I mean, that's just the nature of the beast now, right? In terms of college basketball, in terms of college football, and that guys are visiting places while committed. It's more of a rarity to see guys shut things down. I, I spoke with Jake Shipley, one of Oregon's commits, and this week, and I asked him, like, what? Why did? Why have you not gone to other? Place and he goes. That's just not me. And I was like, you realize like you're the minority, right? And he goes, yeah. It seems to you know be the case that you know, most guys these days just like to go around and and check out other schools and, and see games and whatnot. Um, Oregon. If if a guy is committed to another school and they call Oregon and say they want to visit, and Oregon gets a feeling that it's a legit interest, they're gonna host him. Like, Oregon's re- Oregon is at a level right now recruiting that is unmatched by anyone else in the Pac-12. And the idea that You don't target guys that are committed elsewhere. That theory is broken. It doesn't work anymore. Today's society of college football recruiting operates with that mentality. And if you're a school that just says, Hey, well, he committed. Let's just not, let's not go after him anymore. Like you're not going to sign the top classes year in and year out. And that's what it takes. And until the kid himself says, Hey, I'm good back off, you continue to recruit the player, and that's what Oregon's done.
1: Well, final question here is a basketball question from At Tosh Myers. Is this the best Oregon basketball team since the Final Four team? Now, I want to say, they didn't specify men's or women's, so I guess <laughs> I'm, I'm going to leave this open-ended, but uh, I guess in terms of the men's basketball team, it certainly has that feel. I mean, the year after they went to the Final Four, was a disappointing, didn't make the tournament. Yeah, didn't make the NCAA tournament. It was a really disappointing season. Last year's team was really disappointing until, you know, the last stretch of the year. I think the ceiling for this team, and Matt knows this team a lot better, so he can speak to it more. But from my perspective, the ceiling of this year's team is is probably a little bit higher than last year's team once Bull Bull went down. Do you agree with that? I, I think this is clearly the better team between the last two years.
0: Yeah, like I, I think this group just has better flow to it. Um I I think last year's group probably was the more talented of the group. Yeah. Um, from a pure raw talent perspective, but I don't necessarily think last year's group was a clean fit. <laughs> As in, like I looked at I you know, looking at last year's team, and you see a group that like they they had to play with four forwards basically, uh, and and one guard. To get things to fit. This year, they've got a center and, and a coro. They've got an athletic power forward that's a lot like Elgin Cook and Shakur Houston. And then they've got two guards and, and Anthony Mathis and Chris Duarte that are a little bit different. Like, Duarte is, it's got the size and the length to drive to the rim and finish. He's got a decent stroke. And Mathis is the opposite. Like, he's a sniper from three. If you give him just a gliver of hope, He's gonna make it, and he's got the ability to go into the paint and hit the floater every now and then. And then you got Pritchard, who's, you know, arguably one of the best point guards in, in the conference and in, in the country too. Um, their depth is a little bit better too. I, I, I think this year's team just flows better; the pieces fit better. Uh, now it's just gonna be can they progress earlier than last year's team did? Because last year's team, once they figured it out and it clipped, they were damn good. Um, it's yeah, just now, yeah. can, can this group, can they keep stacking good, good weeks on top of good weeks? I think this one has the potential to be, uh, the best since the final four team from the men. And then it could, it could be better if, if Infalli Dante shows up and is as, as advertised and provides that rim protection. Then they have that opportunity where they could be as good or better than the final four team.
1: And I'm going to just turn this into a women's basketball question really quickly. And, and rather than is this the best team since the Final Four, I just want to say I think this year's team, and it's really early, is already looks has the feel of a better team than last year's team uh, from a women's perspective. Just because there's so much more depth. Like they've had their third best player, Satu Sabli, hasn't played any of the counting games, and they're they're rolling teams and they're getting contributions from players that frankly we didn't really expect to see at this high of a level or certainly last year weren't contributing like this. Taylor Chavez goes for 25 points on one night. Lydia Guillaume has 18 and 9 in one night. Uh Jazz Shelley and, and uh, Holly Winterburn off the bench as, as freshman guards have had, each have had games where they've looked really strong. So you couple that with just everybody else coming back besides Maite, and I think the one thing is, like, if you're just to compare Maite Kazorla to Mignon Moore straight up, I still think Maite is probably the better overall player, but Mignon Moore defensively and her ability to um, distribute the basketball as, as a point guard, as kind of leading the offense, has been really, really encouraging so far. I know it's early. We've, we'll see have really been challenged in terms of who they're playing. They play Syracuse uh, on Sunday. That's going to be the first kind of big test where they go up against a team that's at least got similar caliber of athletes and players, but um, I think this year's team is, is better than last year's team. And to me, I really haven't seen a single thing yet that leads me to believe this isn't the best team in the country and that this isn't a team that, you know, come April we're talking about as, I, I still think, the prohibitive favorite to to win the whole thing because they've got Sabrina, who's averaging a triple-double but really hasn't been herself offensively in terms of scoring. I mean, she's only averaging about 12 points per game, hasn't shot the ball very well from three. Aaron Boley, similar thing, hasn't shot the ball well from three. Ruthie Hebert's been incredible uh, around the basket, as she always has been. She's been probably the most steady of the returning uh, four starters, and obviously Satu's been uh, over in Europe, and she'll rejoin the team this week. But um, I still think, even though maybe it hasn't been the best start for a couple individuals on this team, offensively in particular, they've shown so far nothing that leads me to believe that they're going to take a step back from last year's team. And like I said before, I, I really think this year's team uh, is is a, a little bit better than than last year's team.
0: Well, I look at the women and understand the competition in Northeastern, Utah State, and Texas Southern are not going to be teams that are in the same stratosphere as Oregon. No, but the Ducks are missing the eighth best player in the country in Sawtouzabili, and they've scored eighty nine, one hundred nine, and ninety nine points, and the most the team has scored is sixty three. They've held a team under fifty. They, you know, Northeastern scored forty seven. So I look at this women's team and you're right, like the depth is insane and they're doing this without one of arguably not their best players, one of the best players in all of college basketball. Like she's right now over in Germany playing for her national team. She'll be back for the Syracuse game. And so once they add her back into the lineup, maybe that allows Sabrina to, to score a little bit more because teams can't sag the paint and and, and double team her because They've got to worry about Sasu being on the floor and, and, and whatnot. But you're right. Like the development of, uh, Taylor Chavez with, with her, with her scoring. I think Lydia Giomi is also, uh, someone that's really improved their game. Um, and then you also have to look at, I think we always kind of look at the re- reserves or, you know, the freshmen of who, who's impressive. But I think Ruthie is, I've watched yeah. their three games on stream and she's unreal right now. 23 and, and 13. She's only committed six fouls. She's only committed six turnovers. She's shooting 78% from the floor. Uh, Taylor Chavez is shooting 70% too. That's really just mind boggling for a guard. Uh, that's not bad. No, not, not bad at all. So I, I think Ruthie's also taken her game up to another level and I'm always impressed with her because she doesn't have necessarily a, like a, a perimeter jump shot and yet she still finds ways every game to, to get a clean look at the hoop.
1: You know, and, and I think one thing, you mentioned that the ceiling for the men's team can get higher if slash when and Folly Dante is available. It's kind of the same thing on the women's side with Sidona Prince. And we're still waiting word and, and uh, Kelly Graves meets with media on Wednesday to, to preview the game with Syracuse. I don't know if I'm expecting anything updated there, but it'll be something that is certainly asked. But if they get her available, that then adds just another Another compliment to what they don't have in terms of she's six foot seven. She can spread the core as a shooter. She can protect the rim. She's really, really good around the basket. So, um, yeah, this team, I mean, it's, it's, (laughs) we could spend a lot of time talking about just the, the overall caliber and kind of what's impressive of this group. But I I know this wasn't even the question originally, but I thought it was, it's worth talking about when you have the number one ranked team uh, in the country in Eugene, um, we should also mention they just finalized their signing class. The men didn't sign a single player, um, I guess there's still time left for uh, the early signing period, but the women did sign five players, the, the highly vaunted recruiting class. You can go check it out on duckterritor.com. We have the list of, of all five players, but five five-stars are signed, so the future of the program, uh, even beyond Sabrina and Ruthie uh, and Mignon, uh, next year's team should be really special as well.
0: All right, that's going to do it for us here on the Ops and Audibles podcast. Thanks for listening to the show. As always, send in your questions each week. To Eric, and your best ones will be selected for the show. So, for Eric Scopel, myself, Matt Prem, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you soon.
1: Adios, amigos.